0: Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. The first thing I was confronted with was on the on the donations page. It said, how much do you want to donate? Do you want to donate 150 pounds? Do you want to donate 50 pounds? Or do you want to donate 20 pounds? Which, first of all, made me think, oh, maybe I'm being a bit of a cheapskate.
1: Even if the findings are perfectly valid scientifically, it can be very difficult to operationalize those in the, the noisy real world environment.
0: you know what, you can test these things and see what range of numbers works best for you, where, you know, if they've got any sense and by the looks of it, they do. Where are they going to get the most donations from? So, Ryan, we've been contacted by a few of our audience to ask what in the hell is digital nudging?
1: Okay, I'm interested in knowing too.
0: Yeah, well, you and me both. No, I'm only joking. (laughs) So we talked about when we did a podcast a little while ago about the five rules for designing a great digital experience. One of the things that we talked about in there was digital nudging. Maybe I could ask you to start off by just telling people about this concept of, of nudging.
1: Sure. So, nudging is a term that was developed by Richard Thaler, who has since won a Nobel Prize in economics, and Cass Sunstein, who's a law professor who's worked a lot with governments. The idea of a nudge is there are a lot of there's a lot of behavioral science that tips the scales in one way or another towards a particular option. So it just makes something more likely to happen. You're never taking away people's choices. You're not forcing them into anything. But by kind of setting up the choice situation in a particular way, then you nudge them towards a particular outcome. And so there's a lot of behavioral economics that falls under the category of nudging, things like framing effects, things like context effects. And all those things can kind of nudge people in one direction.
0: So digital nudging for me is quite simple. Digital nudging is going, okay, so how do we do all of those types of things? How do we design an experience? How do we create an experience online that nudges people to make the right decisions or makes the decisions that will drive value for us? So it's designing all those experiences. So what we're gonna do today is we're going to talk about some of those things. And, and again, these are the things that we look out for when we are reviewing a customer experience. We do a thing called a health check where we examine a digital experience. We're looking out for how many nudges are built in and are the nudges nudging people in the right way, basically.
1: Yeah. Because sometimes they don't. Sometimes they can go in the wrong direction or accidentally Correct. nudging people in the wrong direction. Uh, I mean, one thing to emphasize as we start out here is there's no like scientific class of digital nudges that are different from other kinds of nudges. Instead, as you rightly point out, what digital experiences do is it provides us tremendously more opportunities for including nudges and making them happen successfully.
0: Yeah, and I I think the other thing, and we'll talk about this in a moment, won't we, but testing them. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Because the thing that I love about dealing in the the digital space is you can measure everything. And the, the other key thing is you can test everything. So really low costs, you can test things to see whether they're working or not. And that's a real huge advantage than the physical world. So let's go through and and talk about some of these nudges. As Ryan says, to be honest with you, these are the same things that we talk about on this podcast week after week after week, okay? All that we're doing is now putting them in the digital context, okay? And some of these things organizations do automatically, we're, all we're doing is sort of putting a label on it saying, well, that's what's happening. And the first one is a, is a good example of that. And that's, that's around scarcity. And therefore, what we know is that if you make things scarce, that drives people to make quick decisions. And we had one of your colleagues, didn't we, on the show talking about that?
1: Yes, Kelly Goldsmith from Vanderbilt University.
0: Yeah. Since the pandemic, I gather she's been extremely popular with scarcity of toilet rolls and scarcity
1: of many other things. Yes, she has gotten very popular. People want to talk to her a lot about these things. Is that because she's got supplies of toilet rolls in her house? Um, I mean, I assume she used her expertise (laughs) to really corner the black market. (laughs) I can imagine and wonder what the next scarcity
0: is coming out. So let me give you some examples because th- what we're trying to do today is give you some examples. So scarcity may be where you turn around and go, offer ends in two days. In fact, I was on, on a website earlier today and it had that sort of classic time clock, two hours to go or whatever. Uh, another interesting one that I, I uh, they had uh, Amazon Prime Day a little while ago and I was buying an, a drill for home. I approve. Yeah. I was buying this drill and I said to my wife, Lorraine, I said, right, I'm going to, you know, I'm buying this drill. It's on a lightning deal. I'm going to put it in, I'm going to put it in the basket. And because she was adding stuff as well, it was, we were doing this all at the last minute. And basically she was looked at it for about the next three or four hours and then pressed the button to buy it all. And it had gone. Yeah. (laughs) The time had run out. yeah. Um, Yeah. But the interesting part, the reason I tell people that is that made me go, bloody hell. I missed out on that. That's really annoying. And I'm not going to do that again. You know, next time I'm I'm going to just buy the bloody thing. And it sort of so it reinforces that scarcity thing, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really painful for us to lose out on an opportunity like that. And people are motivated to value something more when it's scarce. And scarce in terms of time opportunities, scarce in terms of number. Just to reiterate the point, this is not a unique to digital phenomenon. Scarcity is true in all contexts. But to your point earlier, it can be really hard to implement a scarcity prime if you are running a brick and mortar store, because now you actually need to like have just a few on the shelf and then, you know, maybe need to restock quickly, but not restock fully or, or advertise that it's for a limited time. And then that's a commitment that you're making in the digital space. All this can be done on the fly. So anytime you go to buy an airline ticket, They'll say, hey, there's only three left at this price. Now, that doesn't mean there's only three seats left on the plane, uh, although it it could. That makes you feel though like it's really urgent. But the airline gets to choose what the price is. And so, you know, it may be a completely true statement that there's only three left at this price, but the airline could change the price and make more available at that price. Or the next price tier up could be one or two dollars different. But the fact that we feel like it's constrained, it's limited in terms of time or number um, motivates us. It nudges us towards purchase. And I guess
0: this would come under the scarcity nudge, but I was on eBay the other day and it said six people watching this, or I've seen it on, I think it's Expedia, one of the hotel sites, where it says 20 people are looking at this or have booked it in the last 10 minutes or something like that which again makes you go, I've got to hurry because I'm likely
1: to lose this. Yeah, so that that prime is interesting because it works two ways. And maybe this can transition us into our next one. It can definitely, you can feel like there are people looking over your shoulder who might snatch this away from you. So there's definitely a scarcity angle to it. But that particular prime also works as social proofing, which I think is another one of the nudges we're going to talk about. And And social proof is just the idea that When more people like something, that's a signal to me that it must also be valuable. So if you're if you see there's a long line to a particular coffee shop, then you think, oh, that must be the best coffee shop if people are willing to wait for it. And again, social proofing works in all contexts, but it can be a lot more difficult to to pull off in the real world, whereas online showing people and again, you don't want to lie about this stuff but you can reveal true information to customers and say, yeah, no, 20 people have been looking at this deal in the last uh, three hours. That then provides me with both potentially scarcity, like what if all those 20 people buy it and there's none left, but then also social proofing, like, oh, actually a lot of people think that this is valuable. That signals to me that it is also probably valuable to me.
0: Yeah, and to continue on on the social proofing, Clearly that's around the reviews and the fact that, you know, if 300 people have reviewed this and given it an average rating of 4.5, then you go, yeah, okay, that, you know, that's pretty good. And even in today's environment where you do sometimes question whether somebody has just been in and voted for themselves, as it were, to try to get the ratings up. You know, clearly, if you've got 4,000 people that have voted it and it's 4.4 4 or something like that out of five, then you you do go, okay, well, that must be pretty good then. If, some, if one person has voted for it and given it a two, you'd probably avoid it.
1: Well, or even if the reviews were the same. So if there's two options, and they both have a rating of 4.5, but one's been reviewed by 20 customers and one's been reviewed by 4,000, uh, again, there's that social proof component to it where, well, the crowd is probably not wrong about this. Yeah. And, th- and that can be much harder to pull off in a brick and mortar store. Like this is a- an opportunity in digital space.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. And and I think you said something on the podcast a l- little while ago which was which was really
1: interesting. Uh, it must have been because I remembered it. You say that as if the, it's a rare occasion that I, <laughs> like it's, it was notably interesting, Ryan, I wrote it in my journal. I hadn't it had never had ever happened before.
0: I remember in 1989 you said something <laughs> that was really interesting. No, you were saying that in the digital environment there are lots of advantages, and there are lots of disadvantages. So clearly, as you're saying, one of the, one of the big advantages is just measure, being able to measure these things and test these things and everything else. But there are some big disadvantages. And, and one of the big disadvantages I've I've experienced recently two or three times has just been being able to understand the scale or the size of an object is the word I'm looking for, when they had the Amazon Prime, we bought some solar lights for the garden. And when I looked at the solar lights, they looked like they were like four inches across. Each bulb was like four inches across. When we got them, it was probably three quarters of an inch. Yeah, And you suddenly go, oh, you know. Now, I am sure if I read the instructions correctly – it would have told me the size uh, of the bulbs. yeah. Uh, So I don't think they're trying to sway my judgment. There's been two or three things that we bought recently where you go,
1: I thought it was going to be a lot bigger than that, or I thought it was going to be a lot smaller than that. So among those disadvantages, right? So we also have the, the opportunity to anticipate those and work around them. So it's become a joke on the internet and some social media circles that because this is an issue, a lot of times people have started including items for, for scale. And one of the ones that was a, a joke, but has actually become quite useful is people will take a photo of something alongside a banana and then say banana for scale. Because we all have, a, <laughs> we all have a, a pretty good idea about how big a banana is. And so if it's a model car that you're taking a picture of, seeing the size of that car next to a banana is actually really informative. And there are a lot of retailers that could do that and don't, you know, you can include a little um, measuring tape next to the item. Yeah. um, Yeah. Because it it is, it's a completely, you know, in terms of of nudging, this isn't an an instance where nudges may be easier in the real world than online. Right. So measuring the size of something in the real world is trivially easy. We, we do that all the time. Whereas in the online environment, we actually may need additional cues to help us out.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. What is your digital or physical experience like from a customer perspective? What should you change? How do you compare against your competition? Whether you're a small, medium or large size organization, why not let me or one of the team review your digital or physical experience? by undertaking what we call an experience health check. In this short and affordable engagement, we will act as a customer. And if that's not practical, we will talk to your customers and we will assess your experience against best practice. We will then provide you with a series of actionable recommendations for change. If you're interested in finding out more, just go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash healthcheck. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash health check so let's go and talk about the next one which is about price and we've really got a really interesting example here and let me try and set the story up and then we'll get into the detail so in england the lifeboats are run by what's called the rnli which stands for the royal national lifeboat institute so all lifeboats and this is a historical thing uh, are run by this charity okay really good charity they do really good work lots of you know, volunteers basically go out and save people from drowning and ships that are uh, in trouble and blah 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 so do a really good job and the other day i was thinking to myself i'm going to donate some money to them okay and i went on to their website to donate some money and I was thinking about donating something like 15 quid or something like that, 15 pounds. I'm talking in English vernacular now. So 15 pounds, I don't know, about $25, $20, something.
1: So you were going to donate squid to them. It doesn't seem like that's something that they would want. <laughs> quid. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so went on
0: to uh, to the website. And the first thing I was confronted with was on the on the donations page, it said, how much do you want to donate? Do you want to donate 150 pounds? Do you want to donate 50 pounds, or do you want to donate 20 pounds? Which, first of all, made me think, oh, I, maybe I'm being a bit of a cheapskate mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I'm skate a fish as well. you notice that? No, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe I'm being a bit of a cheapskate, and maybe you know, 15 quid is not uh, is not enough. But it made me then think, this is a great example of anchoring. So the first number that they put was 150 pounds. The second number that they put was 50 pounds. The third number they put was was
1: 20 pounds. I thought, yeah, that's a really good example of that. And to be clear, they, they also had a field where you could input any amount that you wanted. Yes, they did. They did. But, but they included those as the kind of the default of the suggested amounts, which is very clever. Yes, Absolutely. The other thing that, that I thought within that was,
0: and again, we've talked about this in the past, we've talked about extremeness aversion. So extremeness aversion is, for instance, if we get a quote on our house for some home improvements of some description, Lorraine and I always get three quotes. We, we never go with the most expensive. We never go with the cheapest. We always go for the one in the middle. Yeah, You've educated me on the fact that that's called extremeness aversion, isn't it?
1: It is, in fact.
0: So they were probably, the RNLI are probably pushing us to the 50 pounds. Bearing in mind it was 150, 50, and then, and then 20. And then the other part of that was this whole area around this
1: this decoy effect, wasn't it? Do you want to talk about the decoy effect? Sure. So uh, decoy effect is the idea that sometimes you include an option in a set that you don't expect people to actually choose, but its presence there can kind of nudge you towards one of the other options. So, uh, extremist version says that if you've got, in this case, any three donation amounts, the one in the middle will, on average, tend to be more attractive to people. The amounts that they had up there are, in fact, interesting. So, it wasn't like, you know, 20, 30, 40. It was 20, 50, 150, And I think that that more than just extremist aversion, that does lend itself more towards being kind of a decoy option, where because it's so extreme, it really does make that 50-pound option look much more reasonable by comparison. And so it's kind of nudging you towards that 50-pound option. So I think that this may be, as you point out, an example of both extremist aversion and potentially of the decoy effects, just in this one example. And the
0: other part that I think is really worthy of uh, mention is that notice we're sitting here talking about three things that are happening in one space on one page. Yeah, So therefore, go back to what Ryan and I often talk about is the fact that oftentimes there's more than one thing happening. It's not just you don't just look at one thing. The final fascinating thing that that really made uh, Ryan and my day was before us going into this podcast, I asked Ryan to have a look at the uh, website to see the numbers. And what Ryan was presented with in terms of the numbers was what I was presented with earlier, 150, 50, and 20. When I went on it to it again, it had actually changed. (laughs) So they'd obviously put some cookies on my, my machine, And it's changed to 200, 100, 50, and 20. So they've given me four options now. But the really interesting thing here for me is that they could be testing it. And again, what's the learning? The learning is, you know what, you can test these things and see what range of numbers works best for you, where, you know, if they've got any sense, and by the looks of it, they do, where are they going to get the most donations from? And could it be that returning people, maybe it's because I've now been on this site three times, four times, maybe, maybe they're going actually, you know, that my donation is likely to
1: be larger or whatever. Clearly, you've indicated an interest in the organization if you visited several times. So maybe there's room to up your potential donation amount. Let's play around with that.
0: Yep. So the whole area there is really interesting. So again, decoy effect, anchoring, extremeness aversion. The other one I wanted to raise in this whole area of digital nudging is the evaluability
1: heuristic. Uh, Again, Ryan, do you want to explain what that is? Sure. This is a finding that was popularized by Christopher Shi at the University of Chicago, actually a colleague of Richard Thaler's. And his observation was that a lot of times when some attributes are easier to evaluate than others, so let's just start there. And what he observed is that a lot of times the easy to evaluate attributes are the ones that drive our decision-making, even over and above attributes that are objectively more important, that matter more. So when something is easy to evaluate, it tends to be more important in decision-making. So
0: my example of that is I, a few months ago, bought an uninterruptible power supply because our home in Florida gets blackouts because of uh, lightning and all that type of stuff. And I decided that I was going to buy this uninterruptible power supply. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I know bugger all about uninterruptible power supplies. And when I went on to Amazon and looked at all the detail, I was absolutely gobsmacked at the amount of technical detail that there was there. But the one thing that I could make a judgment on was when it went out, how long did it last? (laughs) Simple as that. And so I made the judgment about which ones to buy on that, I have to say, to the point here, also on social proofing, which other ones people have bought and what they said about them, et cetera, et cetera. But that, again, I think is is a key thing, which is, well, how are your customers going to make a decision? What is that criteria? What does that look like?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's possible that electronic specifications, the ohms and the amps and the voltage and all that kind of stuff may objectively be more important, but what chance do any of us have in evaluating those criteria? And so we focus on what we can evaluate. And I think what the other part of that for me is that actually
0: I'm just one segment of the market. There may be other segments of the market where actually those are the more important things and they do understand them. And therefore that's the thing that they will use to make that judgment.
1: Absolutely. And it's an excellent point.
0: Good. I feel like closing the show now if I've made an excellent point. Oh, I marked it in my journal too. (laughs) Are you going to turn around in a few months' time and say, I remember you making a good point? No. In fact, we will never speak of this again, Colin. (laughs) (laughs) So the other one, and there are lots of them, but this is just a last example, and that is of framing. So the way that you put things, okay, And two examples I would give are are the way that you can frame something is, for instance, if it's uh, you're trying to sell a car, then you can either say this car does 25 miles per gallon, or you could say that it is the best-in-class fuel economy, assuming that it is, where you don't have to specify how much it is or what the miles per gallon is. Or you can turn around and go, well, 4,000 people a year die from not wearing seatbelts. Or you could say that 13,000 lives have been
1: saved through wearing seatbelts. Yeah. Or you can say a person dies every eight minutes from not wearing a seatbelt. All of those are equivalent pieces of information, but they're all framed in different ways. Yes. So the way that you say things, the way that you think about
0: it. And that isn't, for me, the important part about this is these aren't just sort of marketing slogans okay it is literally down into the wording that you use so if you're trying to define what your experience should be if you want customers to trust you then the words that you use should be more trusting type of words or cared for type of words and the way that you say those things should be that should be the the case. Let's just do a, a quick roundup, and then we'll get into uh, what are the key things that we need to do. I think the overall thing for me is that there are all of the behavioral science stuff that Ryan and I talk about and have been talking about for the last two or three years on this podcast are uh, play out in a digital experience. The issue is, do you understand what you're doing with them, and are you using these digital nudges to nudge your customers to make the decision that will drive value for you, okay? And some people do, some people don't. What are the key
1: takeouts, key recommendations that you would give, right? I would encourage people to think about this. We've said this on the podcast many times. Sometimes people get a little uncomfortable when you talk about you know nudging and, and behavioral influences and behavioral science influences because it can feel manipulative. My reframing of that question is, you're doing this already. So you, you have already created your digital experience to nudge people in certain ways. The question is whether you're doing it deliberatively or not. So have you figured out what those nudges are and, and what they're driving people to do? Because you are already doing it. So I would I would be deliberative about this, really think it through. The other big opportunity here is around a point that you already mentioned, which is testing. These findings are surprising and evocative and there are these small changes that have been documented to show really big effects the thing to keep in mind with all of that research is that a lot of it was conducted under kind of optimal conditions where you know if we're running an experiment we really want to to quiet everything else down and we want to focus in on just what's important and even if the findings are perfectly valid scientifically it can be very difficult to operationalize those in the the noisy real world environment. And so two pieces of advice around that. One, as as we mentioned already, throw the kitchen sink at it. Like don't just use one, like use all of them. Use as much of this as you can because people are distracted. They don't pay attention. You know, they're not going to process information as thoroughly. And so give yourself maximum opportunity, Um, really layer all these insights on top of each other. And the other part is to test it. All of this stuff can be true that we talk about on this podcast and that that people write about in behavioral science, but nothing is true all of the time for everyone. And so test it and see. the, The Royal Life Post Institute, they're doing the right thing here. They've layered a bunch of insights on top of each other and then they've tested it in a bunch of different ways. Like we were able to identify that live, where I got one version of the website and Colin got a different one. And now over time, they're going to be able to tell, oh, this one really works and this one doesn't work as well, or this one works better when people have visited the website several times, but this other one doesn't work as well. So use these insights to develop better hypotheses, but recognize that everything should be a hypothesis all the time, nothing's settled. So throw the kitchen sink at it, really layer these things on top of each other and test, test, test.
0: Absolutely, and I think you've said it all. I think the, you know, what we know from doing lots of reviews of digital experiences uh, is that most of those digital experiences are not deliberate. Most of those experiences have been designed really without a lot of thought to customer emotions and behavioral science and how you can nudge people along. As you rightly say, those nudges are in there is just they're nudging people all over the bloody place, basically, and clearly you want them nudging people in the the right direction, and that for me doesn't mean that it's manipulative at all, because at the end of the day people make a choice. But what you're trying to do is you do want it to be deliberate, and if you do make it deliberate, as and again I'll just reiterate what Ryan said: test the hell out of it because you can, and also last point i would make is this is where segmentation again comes in because you can now start to segment your market and you can start to design different experiences with different people with different nudges in and that will have different effects and it becomes far more sophisticated so we hope that's been of use um if it has uh, we would ask you to do one favor and that is if you can, wherever you get your podcast from, if you can go on and give us a review to do some social proofing for us and give us some uh, feedback and let everybody know what you think of the podcast, be it good or bad, that would really help Brian and I.
1: And see, I'm going to reframe that, Colin. I'm going to invite our listeners to do us either one favour, two favours, or ten favours. choice. <laughs> and among those would be rating and reviewing. But you put the anchoring one, the ten favours, at the end. You could either do ten favours for us, or <laughs> two, or one. See, I'm, I'm learning all the time, too.
0: Excellent. All right, look forward to seeing you next week. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton.